Well, we knew we were going to get there. This is the last, last of 20 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. We, uh, I don't know, in some ways I think we didn't go deep enough, but it's hard when you have this living word to, uh, sometimes to do it justice. Uh, but we're going to look at uh, another summary. We've done this uh, the last three weeks. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount gives us a lot of ethical teaching that's really hard, and we went through it verse by verse. But then we w- went through for th- three weeks to look at who is this Jesus? Why does he have authority? It's the question that always sets at the center of, of well, history, really. Um, every religion needs to figure out who he is. Every person does. Uh, who is Jesus? Uh, and what the, the, synoptic go- the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, they kind of tell the same story. That's what synoptic means. But they kind of do that, they, you know, we, and we've been doing They look at Jesus. He's the teacher, and he's a judge. We're starting to figure that out, and his disciples are. And those gospels kind of take us through and help us understand, okay, I see him as a teacher, but there's something more. And then we looked at last week at the Lord and Savior. That's pretty cool, too. Lord, somebody you would have pledged allegiance to, as we've been talking about. Savior, somebody who saves us from damnation into salvation, and we walked through that a little bit. And today we're going to go right into his essence, uh, Jesus' authority as Son of God and as God. And this is what turns us into the Trinitarians, you know, which Orthodox believers are. Why do we believe in the Trinity? It's the same answer to every question, really, Jesus. Jesus doesn't allow it really other way. And so that's what we're going to kind of do today. So we're looking at Son of God and as God. Not that they're definitely different, but there is some nuances here as we look at this. So Jesus' authority is Son of God. And when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, he, G- Jesus does lay out kind of a doctrine of God. He talks about the, the, the birds and the flowers and the people that God is your creator. And you see this, and we use this for the, for the children's sermon. But John, what John does is he comes along, and I think this is my opinion, and you know, take for what it's worth. Uh, it looks to me like John kind of comes along and sees these Gospels, and then he takes and says, we're going to go a little deeper on a lot of this stuff. And that's what I'm going to do in this sermon, is take some of the Matthew stuff and then go to the John and say, maybe they were written at the same time. I don't know. Um, I was going to say I don't care, but I guess I do care. I just don't know. Uh, they didn't do that. You don't say, you know, I, John, you know, October 26th. 64 or whatever. We don't know. We don't know when they, we, we guess. Uh, we know they were written in the first century. But think about how John starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Okay, I can deal with that. There's this word thing, dude. We find out later it's a dude. That's the Latin word. No, it's not. It's the <laughs> and the Word was God. Okay, now I'm a little confused. Is he with him or was he? You know, that's that, again, we're getting into the Trinitarian view. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Okay, well, that's pretty cool. But there might have been a few things, right? Well, and without him was not anything made that was made. So if he made everything and nothing was made that by him that was not been made means he wasn't made. He always was, which is our doctrine of God, you know, always existing. So now we're getting, oh, wow, this is, this is deeper. Again, the Trinity is a solution, not a problem. We have to remember that. It takes all of the verses in the New Testament and tries to figure out a doctrine that makes sense. And yeah, it makes your head blow up a little bit. That's okay. 
as long as it doesn't actually blow up. It's hard. It's hard to get to the nature of God. Like I said, you can't even get to the nature of you. You know? I didn't know till last month where the thyroid was. I knew I had one. And I knew some people had problems with them, but I didn't know where it was. I mean, some sort of roid somewhere. I don't know. There's adenoids, thyroids, this roid, that roid. I don't know. It's, we don't even know ourselves. And, and we're saying, well, we're going to exhaust the knowledge of God. But he gives us enough. So God is creator. God is king. We, in the Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle is the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And in John, Jesus talks about this before Pilate. Jesus answers Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, you just said that in the Lord's Prayer, really, that the perfect kingdom isn't. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And this is a very strong line. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So if you don't listen to Jesus' voice, then you're not of the truth. You know, that's, that's him, that's not me, you know. You can shoot the messenger, but he's the one that said it. I'm just telling you what he said. And again, what we try to do as preachers, and I think anybody who's producing or proclaiming the gospel in any way, you know, it's kind of like you say, what I have told you is true. Whether you believe it or not, it's kind of up to you. You know, I can't make somebody believe it. Not everybody did. Did Pilate believe it? You know, his next line is that quid es veritas, that thing you learn in Latin. What is truth? And I thought, perfect timing. Jesus can say, and he doesn't say anything. You know, he's just probably throwing pearls to swine there a little bit. And then, then we find out from Jesus that God is our Father. We, we, it comes off our lips fairly easily. But you can only call God Father if you have been adopted into the family through the Son. And you see this in Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, we're slaves to sin, Romans 5 and 6, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, children, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, that's the idea. You can only call God Father if you are a child of God. And that's not just by creation, that's by adoption. You know, the idea of you have faith in the grace, now you can call God Father. I know this is just one of those goofy theological geek Greek pet peeves of mine. But I always cringe a little bit when, we, when people do an Our Father collectively when I'm not sure if they really should be calling him <laughs> now the lightning doesn't hit anybody which is nice usually but it's like really in the course of normal human life you have no business calling god father he's not your father he's your judge it's only through christ that he becomes your father and the only real wise emotion that someone have that doesn't believe is fear but as we saw in 1 John when we went through it, perfect love drives all to all fear. We don't, we don't, don't look at God, if you're a believer, as a judge, because that's gone. You know, grace changes that. He's not, he's no longer your judge, now he's your father. That's kind of cool, you know, and it's a privilege to do that. So 
We have the privilege of praying to God the Father if we're adopted into the family through God the Son. You see this in Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And that's not just faith in faith or faith in having trust in something. It's faith in Jesus. It's always faith in Jesus. You know, it's got to have a faith is only as strong as the object which you place it. You can trust in lots of things, but is it something you can really count on and put confidence in? So you've got our nature, which is fallen, and you've got Jesus' nature. So he's a little different because they're trying to figure out who he is. You know, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, this dude is, and dude, we're going to use dude today, I guess. Like, oh, this keeps coming out. Um, this guy, is he's teaching on his own authority. This is different. You know, I shouldn't do that. If, I, if, if, if it says, you know, Brian saith, and if you put the th down, it sounds better, you know, because I don't know why, because it's Shakespeare, I think. Who cares what I say? It's, it doesn't line up with what the one who has the authority. That's the main thing. So what is our nature? We get in Ephesians 2. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, we there are believers in Ephesus, so they aren't anymore, but they are now. What is wrath? We've defined that. It's God's settled response to evil. You know, I, I, I like our country. I think it's, it's uh, I mean, as they always say, if you don't like it, go somewhere else, and I'm still here. <laughs> but, you know, we have all of mankind. Every American is children of wrath until something changes. You know, that's, that's the idea. Our nature, we are born into fallenness. That's the biblical worldview. You know, we're not born into goodness, and the society, causing society is not always helpful, but, you know, the theological, we're all, after Adam's sin, everybody sins and falls short of the glory of God. But what about Jesus? Did he, was he, is he a child of wrath? Is he different? Well, it says in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You can't do that. I can't do that. There's something different here, isn't there? He's a different nature. That's why we call him, and we won't get, go down that rabbit trail too far, but he's fully human, completely and truly human, but he's also truly God. And that's essentially, if you know Christian history, that's what starts the whole idea of Trinitarian view. Who is Jesus? Well, he's definitely human. We got that. But he's definitely God. We got that. Well, how does that work? Who's he praying to? Who's this other person that comes later? It's called the Holy Spirit. You see how it starts to, the chain starts to fall on the meter. But Jesus' sonship, we can call ourselves sons of God. And the Bible sometimes calls it, in fact, the children of Israel. We're just people who happen to be born into Israel. But that wasn't used the way it is here. His sonship is unique. You look at him later in Matthew. All things have been handed over to me by my father. That is a cocky thing to say if it didn't happen. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. This knowledge, it's like you think about, I don't know how that, you ever think about the fact that God is love? You've heard that, right? Did that start only after creation? Before that he wasn't love? 
Because if God is just a unity of one person, then you can't, love has to have an object, right? This is actually a kind of a good, a good little argument for the Trinity. But the idea that if there is a Trinity, if there's a loving relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through eternity, that love could be there before any creation existed. That's, it's different. No one knows the Father, not at that level. Jesus is not God's son in the sense of a human father and a son. Jesus is God's son in the sense that he is God made manifest in human form. That's the idea. This is the Old Testament messianic promise. And you see this again in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Those two together. He's with him, so this seems like they're beside each other, but yet they're both God. Same nature. Getting this? It's really easy, isn't it? <laughs> Undo this stuff. And this is an interesting verse. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's His humanity. And we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's only one in this unique way. And where we get how this kind of works out is in Philippians 2, which if you can turn there if you want. As you see these summaries, you just, you're just bopping into different kind of a systematic theology sermon where we're coming through. You know, in, in Philippians 2, you got this Christ him. How does this work? He's, he's, he's God, but then he becomes flesh. We just read that. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. It's a very poetic way of saying he became human. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's always scary when you get a thought in the middle of a sermon, whether you should go with it or not. What do you think? Should I go with it or not? Go with it. I mean, this isn't that deep, but I just thought about if he didn't become human, he couldn't, they couldn't have killed him. Because I know people have tried to kill God, but they haven't succeeded. <laughs> you know, it's hard to do. He had to become human to die as a sacrifice. You're probably thinking, well, duh. Well, it meant something to me, I guess. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, which in the Old Testament is Yahweh, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I remember how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, everybody is going to bow. And you're gonna, the, the believers are going to bow down and say, you are my Lord. And those who don't believe are going to bow down out of submission and say, you are the Lord. You know, <laughs> who are you following? You're going to bow down either way. As allegiance to Lord or as complete defeat from the sovereign creator. And you see this idea of the Son of God way back in the Nativity verses of Luke. And the angel gave answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You, know, you see that theology coming in over and over again. The, meaning the only one. You know, that the word is important, especially in John. I am the way the truth, and the life. I'm not one way of many. You know, that's out there. Jesus doesn't allow it. And people say, I've heard people say, well, I don't like that. 
So, <laughs> is it true? That's what I, there's a lot of things I don't like. Uh, I don't like it's going to be 98 both Monday and Tuesday. But is it true? You know, that's the thing. That's what you look for. Is it true? Later in Matthew, he hits this pretty hard again um, when he's talking to some of his adversaries, I guess we could say, uh, in, in chapter 26. Uh, this is the high priest. Jesus remains silent, which annoys them. And the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, you have said so, which is another way of saying, yep. Uh, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven, which is a Daniel reference of this ancient of days giving the Son of Man power and authority. And how did the high priest take this? Well, he tears his robes, which is a blasphemy thing. Um, He's uttered blasphemy, you further witnesses do we need, you have heard his blasphemy, and then they spit on him and beat him up. Uh, but you think about, why would his claiming to be the son of God be considered blasphemy and be worthy of a death sentence? If it's just because you have that out there. Well, he was just saying that God was important to him. We're all sons of God if we try to follow Yahweh. There's something more here, isn't there? The Jewish leaders understood exactly what Jesus meant by the term the son of God. To be the son of God is to be the same nature as God. That's blasphemy. We see that clearly. He was claiming to be the same nature as the Father. To be, in fact, God. And that was blasphemy to the Jewish leaders because, and why death? We say that. We, we, we do that and sometimes we, we think about, well, why did they kill him? Couldn't they just like smack him around a bit and put him in a jail cell for a while then, I don't know, drop him off at Patmos like they did John? Leviticus 24, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. This is God saying this. If you blaspheme, you're supposed to be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. So he even got the method. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So they're just doing what they're told. Now the problem, when we find that out, you can get that during Holy Week, that they didn't have the power to kill him, and so they get the Romans involved, and that all kind of goes that way. But this is it. Um, so I wouldn't blast me back then. That would probably be a bad idea. And what does it mean to blast? It's not just, you know, we do this, you know, when we're texting, OMG. Is that blaspheming God? I guess we could take a poll, then I'd tell you if you're right. But... Uh, <laughs> I guess it depends on the heart of the person. I don't think everybody that says, oh, my God, in that way is necessarily blasphemy. I don't think that's their, I mean, again, it, it isn't about just frivolously saying words. It's essentially attributing to someone other than God, God-like qualities and taking God and trying to put him down a notch. But Jesus, it says in Colossians, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So how do we wrap all this up theologically? Well, theologically, Jesus is God the Son, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is one of the three persons of the one true God, and that's kind of the wrapper we put on it. Now, they didn't understand that back in the Sermon on the Mount, and the only reason we try to believe this is because this is what is revealed to us. But 
that's the bulk of the sermon, but what does it mean to have authority as God? He's, again, he has his own authority. He's not going back to Scripture all the time, even though he does sometimes. I remember hearing a story uh, Oz Guinness told in one of his books about a World War II private who was in a foxhole and had been shot, and it was mortally wounded, and the chaplain comes to him and knows it's not going to make it. And the young man looks at him and, and says, tell me, is, is Jesus like God? You know, and the chaplain said, well, sure he is, you know, and tells him he's, because he really likes Jesus, he just couldn't quite get his mind around God. And two things kind of come from that. First of all, why are, where did we drive a wedge between God and Jesus in our country and in our society? I mean, the Bible never does that. And the other thing that's cool is the idea that the chaplain could just say, and we, I can say to you, if you want to know what God's like, just take Jesus' hand and let him show you. It's pretty cool. I don't tell it, Nathan, it tells us everything about God, but it says everything you need to know. You know, it's the old idea, if you get Jesus right, you get God in heaven thrown in. That's pretty cool. Just follow him. So authority of God, there's, a, you know, there's hundreds of claims of Jesus' divinity in the New Testament. A lot of them are in the Gospel of John, a lot of them are in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's three examples that we had. The final beatitude, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, all the... Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Not on God's account, my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So if you are reviled because you believe in Jesus, you get heavenly reward. This is a heck of a claim. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the implication is unavoidable. Jesus expects his followers to suffer for his sake. And likens, you know, their persecution to that of the Old Testament prophets. That's pretty cool. This is a Yahweh claim <laughs> sitting there again. And then we have this in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, we hit this pretty hard when we went through it. This knowing you. Because, you know, we talk about it. If you go to lunch today and, you know, I think this is always easy. And if you're wondering, you probably are. You're probably sitting there thinking, I wonder what we're going to do since the Sermon on the Mount series is done. I don't want you laying awake at night. And I don't want you texting me at midnight. Unless you really need to. Uh, we're going to do a series on Christian hope. Um, I think that word has a different meaning now in secular ways. And what does it mean to hope in Christ? So we're going to do some work on that coming off of 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, but knowing Jesus, this is important, you know. Uh, he, he, he tells us that it's not so much in this chapter that we know Jesus. When you're telling somebody the gospel, it's like, we, I want you to know who Jesus is. Well, that's true. But ultimately, is does he know you? And it's not, you know, hello, my name is Jesus type stuff. I mean, it's not just this, you know, casual, this knowing word is that deep connection, this relationship, you know. When we die, can we have people, is, is Jesus going to say, well, yeah, I know him. I know her. And then come and, you know, well done, you followed me. That's what we're looking at. You do, that's what we want when you get to the, to the, to the deathbed. You know, you know, if you didn't hear, though, Frank Holly passed away this last week. We were doing a celebration 
memorial service Thursday at 5.30, is that right? Yeah, here. Uh, but, you know, I have no doubt in my heart that, that Jesus knew him, still does, knows him well. And so it'll be, it'll be a good, so to remember that, that this is important. Um, so you think about doing what Jesus said is doing the will of God. That's his implication. You go back to the temptation. Jesus says to Satan, again as it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, who's being tested? Jesus. You ever, we don't catch these, do we? It's a deity claim again. And then you know that everyone in Jesus' audience knew that only God was the ultimate judge. We talked about that. We can make gracious assessments of people. I don't think it's nice to go up to somebody who is maybe addicted to something or is really acting in poor ways and they're part of the community of faith and you say, well, I don't want to bother them. I don't want to judge. Well, that's just dumb. You know, no, you go help them because you want to, yeah, that, that type of judgment is good because we're trying to help. But we can't ultimately judge someone in salvation. That's up to, that's up to God. And you see that in the Psalms. But the Lord sits enthroned forever, and L-O-R-D is Yahweh. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. He, he, he. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus claims that the right way of salvation hinged on him because he's the final judge. And you see this put in John, where the Father judges no one, but has given all the judgment to the Son. So whether you end up in heaven or in hell is all dependent on him. He's either judge or savior. Which one do you want? The Sermon on the Mount has direct and indirect claims to Jesus' deity. But again, you see it brought out more in the Gospel of John. They work together. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. And they understood what he was saying there. And we know that from the Gospel of John. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And every time he gets confronted with that, he says, yep, I am. He never backs down. He could have at the trial. If he wanted to avoid it, he could have said, well, no, I was just kidding about that God stuff. You know, don't get carried away. No, he takes it. No, you're right. You know, are you the son of God? Yeah, and you'll see. And he's changed to son of man, which has the same connotation. On the right hand, coming in the glory is what Yahweh's doing. I mean, he's just like, like yep, I'm Yahweh. I'm not Yahweh the Father, and I'm not Yahweh the Spirit. I'm Yahweh the Son. It's pretty cool. I don't know if you do that. I know I'm weird. Um, or maybe you're all weird and I'm normal. Anyway, um, no, a lot of us, you, you could just sit there and ponder that for a while. It's just kind of, it's kind of cool. You know, it kind of seems like what's happened in Revelation. They're just worshiping him and they don't seem bored. And I said that before. If you're following Jesus and you're bored, you're not doing it right. I'm not saying it's all peaches and cream, but it, you shouldn't be bored. There's two responses everybody has in the Bible. Abject fear and complete joy. And the difference is whether you're adopted into the family. His perfect love drives out all fear. You know, you think Isaiah, good dude. There it is again. Why does that word keep coming? 
anyway. But Isaiah, Isaiah 6, you know, I see the Lord set it on the front. What's he do? He gets on, he doesn't just kneel down, he gets on his belly. Woe is me. Everybody that encounters Yahweh in any type of way, but then it's kind of like you get that in, you know, in, in Ezekiel to stand up. No, you're not worthy, but I'll make you worthy. You know, it's kind of cool when you think about it that way. But they wanted to kill him because he was making these claims. So Jesus spoke of God as his father in a unique sense and finally proclaims that what he does, God does, and what people are doing to him, they're doing to God. And if you want to understand God best, you must look to Jesus to learn from him, as we said. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and he's the rock. That's the idea. But as we end here, this is if I suppose if someone asks me, you've got to have one verse you want to tell somebody about and use that as a springboard. It would probably be John 1.14. You could have a different one. I mean, if you want to be wrong, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, everybody has their own view, right? This one just really hits me right now as, as a springboard to what we're talking about. The Word became flesh, the incarnation. You know, that's God the Son becoming flesh, dwelling among us, and dwells among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a gospel in kind of a nutshell. But it all comes when Jesus comes and shows that He is Yahweh, but not all of Yahweh. But He gives us what Yahweh's like by His life, His death, and His teachings, which is why the Sermon on the Mount is so important. Let us pray. Father, as we sum up this uh, wonderful sermon uh, that, and point to the one who gave it of who he is, we know that you give us and reveal us in your word everything we need to know to be saved, to have eternal life, and to serve you as your servants in gratitude. May we remember that. May we want to know your word, have hunger for it, try to understand it, because we know it reveals who you are in a way only it can. And by the power of the Spirit, try to work together to know you better and better now and for eternity. Amen.